What up, party people, and welcome to another episode of the Idea Bordello with me, your host. Today's episode is with one of my personal heroes and a man who really had a traumatic impact on my life, Mr. Dali Tambo. For those of you who are not aware, Mr. Dali Tambo is an eclectic artist, writer, filmmaker, um, musician, promoter, you name it. He's a real Renaissance man with incredible flair and taste and style and swagger. And I felt very blessed and fortunate to be able to have this conversation with him. Um, Dali Tambo had a really traumatic impact on my childhood as a brown child growing up in post-apartheid South Africa. Um, there were not many other people like me growing up. Um, so it was really wonderful to one day turn on the television and see this very eclectic, very colorful man who also happened to sound like a white lady on television doing all kinds of wonderful things that I could only dream of at the age of like four or five or whatever I was at that age. Anyway, um, this episode is takes on a, I suppose, a slightly different um, complexion. <laughs> Love that. Um, instead of, you know, prying his mind open around contemporary events and, you know, his thought processes, I decided instead to try have a conversation with them about his childhood which is very chaotic and very insane and very colorful but framed by an indomitable spirit to overcome the challenges that were put forth to him and his family and it really helps me get a deep understanding of the man and all the incredible stories and activities that he had to endure in order to just survive so thank you so much again for taking the time to listen to, to us and without any further ado here's my chat with the one and only dali tambo mr tambo thank Hi. you so much for taking the time it's a pleasure all right well why don't we start right at the beginning where it all began so you were born in south africa yes and then i think you were about three or four one one yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't even born here really well, I, 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 I was kissed at the hospital and yeah. then within a year shipped off. Uh, shipped off. Okay. Um, my father had already left. Yes. And um, the story goes that, uh, because, you know, um, to escape out of the country dressed as a chauffeur. Yes. And then had a guy called Ronald Siegel okay. um, uh, go with him. Uh -huh. And he pretended to be the driver. <laughs> Um, and apparently came to say goodbye to us and my sister said, Daddy, why are you dressed like that? Mm. Um, and he drove off and then my mother followed um, the following year yeah. um, and took us with, with her. Okay. So I, I, I was um, born here, uh, left when I was one years old mm -hmm. um, and returned when I was uh, 31 years old. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Especially because my father, uh, my mother had said to my father, how long will we be out of the country? Yeah. He said, no, Dilly, no, no longer than five years. <laughs> <laughs> and she always Did said to me, that? if I'd known, I would never have left. Of course, of course, yeah. of course, yeah. of course, of course. It reminds me of the story, um, 
friend of mine's mother told me she was a teacher at St. Peter's mm. in the 80s, mm. Mm. and they had black students there. Yes. And whenever the inspectors would come around, mm. they would take all the black students into the women's bathroom mm. and have story time. <laughs> and the reason why they had all the black children in the women's bathroom yeah. was because the inspectors, as much as they were awful racist people, mm. still respected the boundaries of gender. Yes. So they would never ever check the woman's bathroom. I see. So they would cram in these like eight little black boys into this mm. little toilet mm. with one woman and she would sit there and read them a story mm. whilst the inspectors made sure there weren't any black shoes there. <laughs> so I think the one thing about apartheid that I, I greatly appreciate for no reason that it's absurdity mm. is that the intricality of it all. Mm. Right? Mm. In fact, your father had to perform as, yes. a, as a butler yes. in order to escape. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like there were all these these strange absurdities yeah. that were solved through theatricality, yes. which is yes. quite strange. Yeah. Okay, so you're now one years old. You're coming into existence, mm. and you find yourself in uh, England. Yes. Okay. Mm. It's a very different England to the England we know today, isn't it? Totally. I mean, yeah. um, it was uh, the England of the 60s. Correct. Beginning of the 60s. Uh -huh. It was still, um, you know, I only know it anecdotally from my mother. Mm. But she said that um, when she was trying to find accommodation, yeah. either because of her accent mm -hmm. or because on certain buildings mm -hmm. it would say uh, rentals, no blacks, mm -hmm. no Jews, mm -hmm. No Irish, mm -hmm. no dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I would be highly, highly upset if I was the dogs. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I, I kind of... Uh, she says that um, for the first couple of years mm -hmm. um, living at home, mm -hmm. um, I was still speaking to her. Mm -hmm. And then um, at the age of about uh, five, I went to a boarding school, uh, a convent, mm -hmm. um, because she was working nights and all of this kind of stuff. Yes. And there I met uh, kids from different African countries, oh, but mostly English kids, yeah. Catholic, uh -huh. um, and uh, lived the life of a Catholic boarder at a convent. Fantastic. Um, so you essentially were sent off to boarding school at the age of six? Yeah. All right, yeah. so you're no difference to the pudding, like Puddington Crow Cloud and the rest of them who get shipped off and yeah. spanked on the bum and then 18 years later, I think that. That's it. Well, I mean, I stayed there, I suppose, for a few years um, and then went to uh, another private school. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, the Prebendal in Chichester, mm. um, uh, the cathedral school. And, 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 you know, went to Lansing. And so I was always in this environment that was kind of closed. Yes. It was private. Yes. And it was, um, in the main, wealthy kids mm. um, who uh, could afford that. Correct. You know. And I remember her having some um, rows with my father because um, they would have to raise scholarship money for me. Mm. And um, he would say, but why can't he go to the local school? You know. I think for her it was partly that with three kids, she needed to get us out of her hair um, because she was working so much. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also that she was determined and she would say to him, if there's a best school, yeah. why should my children not go to it? Correct. Why must they go to uh, uh, rubbish schools? 
um, etc. So she won that argument. <laughs> and um, yeah, then I ended up at a place called Lance in which um, Archbishop Trevor Huddleston recommended because mm. he had been there. Mm. Um, and again, you know, it was myself and a guy called Kofi. Mm -hmm. um, we were two black kids no. out of 400 white kids. Correct. Um, so you very quickly learnt um, the power of the fist <laughs> <laughs> in defense of your color yes. and um, all of that. Uh, yeah, it was. And, and what also happened was that you, although I knew there was a struggle going on, and you know, all my uncles and aunts were revolutionaries, whether ANC or from other liberation movements. Mm -hmm. So um, I was always very conscious that there was a struggle going on, but I was in quite a closed world. And you had your own struggle as well. And I had my own struggle, Correct. you know. Um, and uh, when I was at that place, I remember um, my mother saying to me, you know, your teachers know who your dad is. Mm -hmm but I don't want you to be having to face questions all the time. So um, just if somebody asks you, just say he's a lawyer, which of course he was, but a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, one day I said to her, you know, I, I'm in trouble because I beat up this kid. Mm. And uh, he came at me because his dad is a diamond dealer. Mm. And he said, my father is killing his business. <laughs> Uh, called me a few names and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you know there, there, there were incidents like that but in the main people were quite sympathetic with our struggle especially the teachers mm. and um, it was a, a non-political environment mm -hmm. to tell you the truth mm -hmm. you know okay. mm -hmm. what was that like growing up a away from your mother directly mm. and then indirectly very away from your father it was it was tough um, in that uh, you know I, I would dread going back to school mm -hmm. my holidays were my everything Correct. I adored her my father would pitch up once a year if I was lucky to be on holiday I'd see him um, otherwise I'd get beautiful letters from him um, which I wish I kept mm. you know um, but, uh, no, for, for me, I was shaped, I suppose, to a large degree by that school, and yet at the same time, I was not a white English kid. Mm. And so um, I, I, I became, I would say, politically conscious quite young, so I got to understand yeah. why I was in this situation. You Correct. Know? Correct. And through my uncles and aunts and people, mm. um, I got to understand it. And um, I had a strange thing in trying to understand my father in that I, he had an office at the top of the house mm. on the second, third floor. And I would go up there and I would read his letters, I'd read uh, copies of ANC magazines um, uh, like Sachaba mm. and things like this. I'd read everything and I'd go through his stuff. And I felt a bit like a spy, <laughs> you know, but it was my way of getting to know him and what he was doing. And um, then when he would come, we'd have discussions, and I remember one particular one where he said to me, how did you know that? Hmm. And I said, no, Dad, I read your stuff, you know, when you're not here, that you leave in the office. And after that, 
um, I found he would deliberately leave stuff oh, for me to yeah. read. You know, wouldn't say anything to me, hmm. but I'd go up to his office and there'd be like 14 copies of Sajaba, South African Communist Party, uh, Journal, this, that, and the other, hmm. you know, etc. Um, and, and so I, I kind of, and then a friend at school um, at Lansing gave me a copy of uh, Karl Marx. Um, das Kapital. Das Kapital. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I, although I was at a right-wing school, yeah. I became quite left-wing by the time I left. Correct. Um, and, it's uh, very easy as a brown person at those times. It is. It was. You know, um, especially returning home to London um, and mixing with other um, people from other African countries who were also struggling for their freedom. Mm and having friends amongst them. And then intermittently, over a period of maybe a decade, mm -hmm. always saying goodbye to friends because now their country was free, <laughs> you know? And it was almost like we were waiting to get picked up from school and you were the last one. <laughs> That's it. That's literally it. That's literally it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I felt a sense of joy for them and jealousy mm. uh, because I would think, but when are we going to be free? And many of them would say to me, Dali, you're going to wait a long time because mm. yours is the hardest. Mm. Yours is going to be the bitterest, mm. you know. Um, uh, but, um, no, but what it did was it opened my eyes in that I could go to Zimbabwe and later Namibia and Angola and places like this, mm. um, visit them and sometimes go with my father. Yeah. Um, I got to know Zambia pretty well, okay. but I, I was living in England. Yeah. Um, and these are crisis nations. That's it. And and I had I had to get jobs like everybody else and help support my mother and mm -hmm. you know do the normal thing. Yeah. Continue studies. So let's go back to something you said that was quite interesting. You said when you were about five and you sent off to boarding school, mm -hmm. you stopped speaking Tosa to your mom. Yeah. And that's when you know the Anglo Anglification. Yes. You know, swamped you. Yes. <laughs> it yes. became almost inex like inescapable, inescapable yeah. right? Yeah. Um, how do you think that affected you and your relationship with her? Just because someone who's had something similar occur to them, you know, language is one of the most important ways in which we create intimacy with yes. our parents. Yes. And once you lose that uh, mother tongue connection, yeah. you can create very um, unique outcomes. Yes. Yeah. Well, in my case, it was almost as if I had never had it. Okay. You know, because I was so young when yes, I you lost, it. lost it. Yeah. Um, and it was only years later she said, you know, until this age, you were speaking to her, and then you started speaking a bit less and a bit less, until now you, you, you weren't speaking anything. Yeah. And um, yet at the same time, I think she took pride in the fact that I, I, I was very good at English, you know. That's the problem, um, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I know, I've got the exact same problem, yeah. because once you're good at it, they stop worrying about reconciling you with your mother tongue. That's the thing. And start telling you to almost uh, over-allocate resources to your English now. Exactly. Because you're good at it. Exactly, and yeah. because that seems to be what you need to take you forward. Correct, correct. Um, and uh, I had a lot of Caribbean friends, mm -hmm. um, and she would always comment... That you Thank God you didn't go to that local school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've had similar interactions when I've been in the UK with people being like, oh, no, where are you from? Yes. And then you're like, 
I'm like, thank God you're not from there. And I'm like, what's wrong with there? And they're like, I can't understand. I'm like, well, they speak English, can't you understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, did the same thing happen to your siblings? <coughs> yes. Okay. I mean, my older sister, Tembi, is a year older than me. Mm. So, a similar thing. Mm. Um, and uh, my younger sister, Salani, was mm. born in England. Okay. Um, she's three years younger than me. Yeah. So, um, they, they all uh, basically became anglicized, yes. you know, mm-hmm. and um, you just had to live day by day, year by year. You never knew, you knew you would one day go back, but you had no concept whatsoever, especially in the early years where you didn't understand the politics. Mm. Um, uh, you had no concept of when that would be. Correct. Or what it would mean. Yeah, so you were prepared to stand by, essentially. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And so I suppose subconsciously you just say, okay, this is life, mm. you know. Mm. And um, there were times when I thought, I'll never go back mm. because, you know, I'm 26 and uh, the struggle is harder than ever, you know, attempts on my father's life and this, that, and the other. And you um, just like to go to the beer, it's a part of my point, you know. Well, that's the thing, you know. Um, and and then you know, there were those cultural things. Mm-hmm. He was a teetotaler, mm-hmm. didn't smoke cigarettes, didn't drink. Yeah, and um, one time he came back, and my mother complained, Daddy's gone to the pubs and uh, coming home mm-hmm. drunk, you know. So, uh, he's normal for your schooling environment for that age, yeah. No, but I mean, it was very culturally acceptable to do things, absolutely. And so, it's very difficult to then communicate that to your father to say, This is it, this is not wrong in my world, it's wrong in your world. Well, the thing that happened was he then went to Archbishop Trevor Huddleston, yeah. And my dad didn't know what a pub was, Mm -hmm. so he asked him, My son's going to these pubs, what do you think? And the Archbishop, bless him, said, look, Oliver, it's fine, as long as he doesn't drink too much. Um, it's a social thing and everything like this. So then he sat down with me and he said, uh, these pubs, um, why do you have to go? And if you go, why, why must you spend the evening? Why don't you uh, go into the pub, order an orange juice, satiate your thirst, and leave? <laughs> <laughs> Completely missing the point <laughs> of the intoxication, which is the, the wonderful it. part. Right? Yes, yes. Oh. Um, but he said to me that, uh, you know, I mean, I think it was hard for him to, to come, go for a year or eight months or six months, and then come and the first day he has to instill discipline Correct. on his children. Yes. It wasn't the way he wanted the relationship to be. Correct. And the poor man is exhausted. That's it. And... Yeah. Um, so she would complain often that, you know, you leave the discipline of the children up to me and all of this kind mm. of stuff. But no, I mean, it, it wasn't like I was unhappy. Yeah. She was a great mum, you know, and um, as I said, I had so many South African relatives who'd come out during that phase. And um, so as I got to know that Joe Slovo wasn't just a white uncle, mm. Uh, Yusuf Dadu wasn't just an Indian uncle. Yeah. Um, uh, Johnny Makatini, etc., etc. Uh, that Tabo and Becky was was not just like my brother. Correct. Um, that they had these roles to play. Um, then I, I, and my friends would always say to me, you know, you're different, because we rave on about movie stars, 
and you rave on about revolutionaries, you know. So I knew I was more political than uh, many of the people around me, unless they were from other African, African countries yeah. or Cuba or somewhere like that. So I think what's, what's super interesting to me and also, let me not say sad, but, but more like um, a different reflection of adolescence mm. is, you know, in the Western world, we believe that our adolescence is a time where we should spend it, you know, frolicking and being mm. gay and, you know, just enjoying life. Mm. Um, you know, same doesn't apply necessarily in the East, but let's just stick with the Western world. Mm. But you almost had your adolescence hijacked as a consequence of your parent, your parents' lineage, essentially. Mm. Which meant that, you know, your friends were playing this wonderful game of life. Mm. Whilst there was, yours was so much more consequential, and your actions were consequential, and there was expectation around you, you know what I mean? And that, that of course, puts a lot of stress and pressure on a young man, um, especially one who's just trying to, A, survive, you know, a much less integrated England, yes. which is a lot more hostile to brown people. Mm. Uh, you know, two, you know, being a young man, which is, filled with wonderful things, mm. primarily just huge amounts of testosterone that make you do stupid things. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is very difficult to overcome, you know, as, as, as I haven't been a young man myself. Mm. And then you have to have your entire existence derailed by this responsibility that you didn't ask for and you didn't, you know, in any way condone, but you were just born into, mm. you know. What was that like, and did you ever feel as if you had certain aspects of your adolescence stripped away from you as a consequence of this? Not really. I, I mean, I only realised that later when I got back mm -hmm. to South Africa. Okay, so you were just no you normalised this. I normalised everything, and uh -huh. um, I knew no different. Okay. And as I became more radical myself, mm -hmm. I veered towards other friends who were also left-wing. Correct. Um, so I would go on demonstrations and fight with police uh, mm -hmm. about all kinds of issues, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, to the point where one day my father said, because uh, I got beaten up at a place called Brunwick um, by these uh, police, and he said to me, why are you doing this, you know, our struggle is at home. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, Dad, the struggle is international, it's mm -hmm. everywhere, mm -hmm. and wherever we are, uh, you know, my attitude is we should struggle there, mm. um, and I'm stuck in England. But um, so I became quite uh, sort of left wing, but I was always, I suppose, what you would call part of the creative set. Okay. Um, I was always part of, um, I nightclubbed a lot, you know. Um, I. Uh, You're going well, that came later because, yeah. um, you know, I, 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 I sort of slipped into... One day I just sat down and decided um, so many friends of mine, when I asked them to come on demonstrations, say, Dali, I'm not a placard waver. I can't be walking the streets waving mm -hmm. placards. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because many of them were either musicians or artists mm -hmm. or creative people, I would say to them, then write a song against apartheid, you know, mm. give a concert, yeah. etc. And in those days, people like Bob Geldof and Sade and people like this were just my friends. Mm. They weren't famous, you know. I remember meeting Bob Geldof the first time we were in this bar. It turned into a party. 
And um, uh, this guy said to me, I said, why is this guy like following us around this party? He said, he just likes Africans, mm. you know, it's just his thing, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and uh, that led me to forming Artists Against Apartheid, yeah. especially because Jerry uh, Danitz had yeah. released Free Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. And it gave a lot of focus to the struggle. Mm. Um, and so I got together with him. We sat in cafes for a year and a bit and plotted uh, what we're going to do. And then when we launched it, uh, we found it really popular, you okay. know. All kinds of bands wanted to be part of it. Yeah. And we wanted them to be part of it because um, they would then become our ambassadors. Yes. For upholding the cultural boycott, don't go to South Africa. But also, um, you know, if you were a George Michael, kids love you, you're on their walls. Um, when they hear you say, I'm anti-apartheid, they would then say, what's apartheid? Why is he anti it? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of musicians got uh, into trouble with their record companies. And um, so they would have to explain to their record companies, mm -hmm. I support these people, the ANC, mm -hmm. because of this, that and the other, yeah. you see. At the same time, you get called terrorists mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff um, uh, to try and persuade young people not to adhere to Artists Against Apartheid, mm. but it was a soft way of bringing people into the struggle. Um, and in many ways it was more powerful than going around giving speeches at Times. university uh, halls. Like it was hell of a lot more seductive. That's it. Um, you can go blue in the face giving political speeches. This is it. Off. And but what we found, exactly. You know, moving and enjoying. Yeah. And, and what the public, um, in the large part because the focus was on the well-known musicians, mm. didn't realise is there was a whole sort of movement in the universities mm. where university bands uh, were having nights against apartheid that they'd invite us to, where university bands were sending us on those tapes, demos of their songs against apartheid and all of this kind of stuff. So it kind of grew. Um, you, yeah. You know, yeah. So you became an, almost like an accidental promoter of sorts. Yeah, and, and it really, you know, climaxed with um, the Clapham Common concert and yeah. the Wembley concerts, yeah. um, the Mandela's 70th birthday concert and the Free Mandela concerts. Um, and, uh, but then again, you see, I was musically... In, no, inclined. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, I, I managed um, two or three British bands. Um, yeah. Whilst, whilst upholding the revolution. Yeah. Well, it was actually before that, preceded it. Okay. Um, I managed some bands. Um, as I say, I was always around musicians. Yeah. I was just part of that set. Correct. And um, so I managed a couple of bands. Um, the last British band I managed was a band called uh, No Smoking. Okay. And I remember sitting in the pub and we were trying to think of a name and there was this sign saying No Smoking. Mm. And I said, what about that? It's everywhere. Mm. And uh, then Herman Stevens, the lead singer of the band said, okay, but it can't be No Smoking, it's gotta be Nosmo King. <laughs> so, you know, I would go to A&R people, I would, I, would, I would try and get these bands, recording companies. Yeah. Then I was asked to manage Dudu Pukwana, okay. and then Jonas Gwangwa. Okay. 
And so I was, over a period of a decade, yeah. I was always around musicians, always in pubs for oh. gigs or clubs or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, in managing Guangua, um, then we got the gig with uh, Cry Freedom. Okay. Uh, I persuaded Richard Attenborough to yeah. let him do the music for Cry Freedom. Okay. Um, and that was the apex, because he got an Oscar nomination, two Oscar nominations. Wow. You know, um, plus a whole lot of other awards okay. uh, for, for, the, for the music for Cry wow. Freedom, him and George Fenton. And so I was always around that kind of thing. Okay. And actually, whilst I was filming uh, Cry Freedom with, with uh, Attenborough, I was his assistant, um, we got an award in Italy. And I wanted to go and receive it. And he said to me, if you leave the set, uh, can't come back, you know. What was that? Um, I think we were just very busy, mm -hmm. and you know, it was the story of Stephen Beaker, and he just said to me, "Choose," you know, mm. um, uh, and and so I didn't go and receive the award, but um, Jerry and some other people from Artists Against Apartheid did. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it, I got a lot of encouragement from my father because his whole mantra was use culture as a weapon of struggle. Yeah. You know, and so um, we had been to see him with Attenborough. We'd searched through the exiles in the ANC in Africa and in London to find a genuine South African who could play Stephen Beaker. Mm. We found a couple who were tall enough and all of that, eloquent enough. But um, he made a very good decision. He said, look, the guy playing Donald Woods is a professional actor. And if we bring in an amateur to play Beaker, yeah it'll seem as if this guy is superior to him. Mm. And that's when uh, he said, let's go and see Denzel Washington. Okay. Um, and that's how my friendship with Denzel flourished, was just working together mm. on Cry Freedom. Mm. And um, obviously he did a sterling job and things like this. Yeah. Then I was asked to do some other films and things like this. And um, for a while, I, I really was committed to being a filmmaker, okay. feature filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and it was my father's stroke, just as I was about to go to the American Film Institute, mm. uh, that took me out of the States and back to England okay. uh, to help with him, you mm. know, yeah. So this is all happening in your 20s, my career? Yeah. All right. So it sounds like you had quite a colourful 20s. That was yeah. Filled yeah. With, it sounds, if anything, absolutely not boring. No, it wasn't. Um, yeah. You know, I, I went to university in Paris. Yeah, Sorbonne. Oh, um, well, American University, Sorbonne. Okay. Um, so the main thing was the American University. And, um, you know, that also uh, taught me another side because it was there that I met a guy called Serge Gainsbourg. Oh, wow. Um, and Serge was the one who said to me, encouraged me rather, um, uh, to form Artists Against Apartheid, because we actually tried in Paris, mm. um, but he liked weed too much. <laughs> <laughs> so you could, you could go for a meeting and, um, you know, nothing would ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So um, I, I only did it when I got back to England. And again, you see, um, literally I, I gave up my film career mm. to do Artists Against Apartheid. Was it fun? It was great fun. Thrilling. Very frustrating because we didn't have much money. Yeah, but thrilling, I imagine. But thrilling. And, um, you know, um, 
Some artists were more generous than others. I got slammed a lot um, by big promotion companies. Mm -hmm. um, even Hugh Masekela, I remember reading this article, and uh, Hugh says in this article, well, uh, why should I listen to Dali Tambo? I was playing horns whilst he was still sucking tit. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I suppose I got a little kind of, you know, because I was O.R.'s son. Mm. And so um, I, I, I was able to move things a bit, mm. um, you know, uh, in terms of... Uh, getting people to understand that the ANC was the only force that could um, change the situation in South Africa. Okay. And that their contribution, whether theatrical or musical, yeah. I mean, we, on some demonstrations, we had vets against apartheid with like six dogs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <That's a good laughs> Uh, with labels on them, dogs against apartheid, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were a propaganda, an artistic propaganda mm -hmm. thing, but we were also there to uh, maintain the cultural boycott. Okay. Um, it sounds like that the thrill of that time could become something that was very addictive and something that became very normalized. Yeah. As someone who's worked in very fast-moving industries with multiple moving parts, yes. you get very addicted to that, uh, that thrill, that, that need to consistently see how you can adjust the puzzle slightly. Yeah. I mean, as I say, the only problem was lack of resources. Mm -hmm. And so occasionally, if the Pet Shop Boys or UB40 or this group decided to donate or do a concert for us, we'd have money for a few months. And then we wouldn't. <laughs> You know, so um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was difficult, it wasn't easy, mm -hmm. and uh, not everyone was for us. Um, uh, but I imagine people were a lot less for you than we would anticipate them being a lot less for us today. Yeah. Whereas today I find that um, yeah. borrowing a handful of uh, like right-leaning extremist organizations, mm -hmm. the majority of people are willing to take the polite route out. Yes. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas in those days, people were more than willing to tell you what they thought about you. Yeah, and, um, you know, uh, the ANC was much vilified in those days by the right wing. Yeah. You're communists, you're terrorists, you know, you get your guns from the Soviet Union, blah, 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 etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So if you were a young musician in those days, and your record label is basically saying, if you want a career, stop all this nonsense with uh, Artists Against Apartheid. Mm. And, and sell records, yeah. you know. Um, so some of them didn't have it easy. Um, some were boycotted uh, by promoters and other mm. people because the apartheid regime got to them, you know. And we had defeats as well. I'd say Paul Simon was one. Mm. Uh, but I later explained to Paul that, you know, we had no choice. You're just another business. Go, you were just another business going into South Africa to make money. Mm. And just because you call it show business doesn't mean that we're just going to allow you to break the cultural boycott, mm -hmm. which was what the South African regime wanted, and then come up with the excuse, yeah, but I'm making money for Hugh and Miriam and all of this kind of stuff. Um, you know, so we were quite tough on Paul, but we had to be because he was trying to break everything we were trying to do. 
Um, yeah, I don't think he also understood the consequences of his actions. Too. That's it. And it's only when he got here, yeah, and Azapo and other people here really went for him, that he understood that. Well, it's a matter of life and death. Yeah, and and that there are our people, in the main, were really pissed off with him. Mm. You know, um, but there were many like Paul. You know, mm. it's Donna Summer, this one, that one. Donna Short and. Uh, well, we were mainly musicians, you know. <laughs> but so, entertainment-wise. Yes, yes, absolutely. You brought on a classic to South Africa. That's it. The, uh, yeah, you know. Um, and so you always, with musicians, had to go through a process of education. Okay. Um, to make them understand that you have no more right to go and play there than, as I said to Paul Simon, you know, you playing in the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm. You know, would you do that? You know? Mm. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, it was generally successful and we kind of became the cultural side of the international anti-apartheid movement, you know, mm. and so uh, strengthened, I think, then amongst the non-political youth of yeah. England. We would have kids saying, you know, since artists against apartheid, my principles mm. begin with being anti-apartheid. Yeah. Okay. And then... I mean, you're essentially a promoter. You hang out with super famous you know, musicians and artists throughout Europe. What were the girls like? You know, what was that like that whole period? I imagine it was very silly and very excessive. I had a good time. <laughs> I, I can't deny that. Well, I mean, this is the thing about life. You should enjoy it as much as you can That's before it. you can no longer. That's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I don't know. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. And then, um, what was Paris like at that time? It was good. Again, I was young, I was wild, I was free, you uh -huh. know, and um, I, I loved Paris, I loved the French, uh -huh. I loved the culture. Yeah. Um, after a while, Darcy September mm -hmm. got appointed to Paris. Mm -hmm. I lived with her, um, and she was a great aunt, mm -hmm. great disciplinarian mm -hmm. for me, you know, um, and... Uh, so, but no, I mean, uh, if I had the money, mm. my children would be in France now. Okay. Um, because I think it's a great cultural breeding ground, educationally. To this day, you still believe? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, it's a great culture, and um, it's, a great, it's a great way of life, mm. um, the French way of life. It, it gives you things that England doesn't, mm. in terms of appreciation of culture, of art, of... Um, continental thinking as well. Continental thinking, worldliness, you know. Mm. Um, but also uh, just... Because you still have to fight racism in France. Well, as I say, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's still racism, it's just a different breed. Exactly. Yeah. And also, I always say to people that the beauty of the United States being the global hegemon yeah. is the existence of the UK. Yes. Because the UK is a more moral balancing act exactly. than the US. But exactly. France does not have a USA. No. no. So what that means is that uh, there are incredibly dark parts of French culture that we as English-speaking people wouldn't be able to identify That's straight out the gates. Whereas in the UK, the dark parts of their culture get quickly shown up by the American parts, by Americans. Yeah. And in America, the dark parts of their culture gets quickly shown up by Brits. So there's this almost balancing act of morality. Well, also, also kind of um, you know, it, it, it's, the racism in France was just different. 
yeah, 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 you yeah. see. Um, so I would always be told by French people with delight in their voices how well I spoke French. Mm. Um, but I had friends who were from West Africa who would speak with a very heavy West African. Correct. Bonjour, madame. Mm, yeah, Comment yeah. ça va? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And um, so they were immediately keep back, mm. stay back, you know, etc. You're, you're, you're foreign. It's almost better to speak with South African accent French than it would be to speak the West African French. Because yeah. At least when you have a South African accent, you're like, oh, you sound funny. Where are you from? Yes. As opposed yes. to like, oh, you're definitely from, you know, Ivory Coast. Well, that's yeah. it. And, and, you know, like England, it's a very class-based society. Do you think more than England or less? Uh, I'd say about the same. You reckon? Yeah, yeah. I was going to try to challenge you on that one, but now that I'm searching my memory, it's very challenging to think of an example. Oh, no, the French are very, very classist. Yeah. And if you're the right class, you're accepted anywhere. Correct. Now, that's the same in England, but um, it's, it's uh, I, I don't know, it's more joyous in French. I think the, the difference as well in the UK is the brilliance of the, 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 the UK primarily in my mind, mm. is that they've taken soft power to a level that no country in the world has. Yeah. Because when you think about it from a pure economics brass tack perspective, they have no business having the influence they do over the world. <laughs> but then when you remember that almost every single aspect of British existence that is culturally exportable is a form of soft power. Yeah. Whether it be the English Premier League, yes, whether the it be the BBC, whether yeah. it be uh, the royals, yeah. the entire royal complex is designed exclusively just for soft power, sure, right? It's sure. not designed yeah. for any other reason than to create yeah. this legitimacy that doesn't exist. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. look, um, they've each had these deep colonial um, conflicts. Um, true, or, uh, true, true. Uh, you know, so in France, for example, I, I was friends with a lot of um, Algerian French. Yeah. They had a much more colourful uh, you know, colonial etc. etc. Who fought really bitter battles against France. Extremely you know. bitter. Yeah. And and so um, again, I would I would hang out with the left wing in, in Paris. Yeah. Uh, not the right wing. I had friends amongst the right wing, but I didn't hang mm. with them, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and again I, I would if I saw a demonstration, yeah. I'd join it. To the point where one day um, Masses of police, one end of the street, and all these demonstrators. And I'd come from a party. And so it was like one o'clock in the morning. And people are pulling these barricades into the middle of the street and throwing stuff and everything. And I joined this guy pulling this barricade, and I wonder why he's been so rough with it, you know. Almost hurting me um, as we're carrying it. And I said, look around, I think, oh my god. This is a right-wing demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surrounded by racists. Yeah. I just ran towards the police <laughs> because I realized I'd really messed up. So no. you become so acclimatized during protests, you completely forgot to check the temperature before you shot. This in. is it, you know. And I'd had a couple of drinks. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I was... I was, um, I was radical, yeah. you know. Yeah. Okay. Have you seen the full Battle of Algiers? 
the film Bad oh, many times years yeah, ago yeah, years yeah. ago when I was decades ago yes. when I was much younger I was obsessed with that one of my best I think it's one of the greatest films yeah. ever made period yeah. Yeah. Uh, not just because of this political subject matter just yeah from the, the style cons- like you know the thematic style yeah. is stunning yeah, yeah. yeah. brilliant yeah. do you have a favourite film or favourite films yeah but I mean um, not that I can think of at the moment okay. I'm, I'm just amazed at how much crap um uh, is made about nothing well, and um, you know it really does dwarf the good stuff it always will though well it shouldn't no um, I disagree with you uh, well you know it's a matter of opinion no no but, no, no, no. Um, I mean, the, the, the nature of the creation of content right is such that now that almost any time Dick and Harry can afford a 4k camera right mm. That means that the amount of capital available to make films is dramatically increased, right? Yeah. Which also means, in turn, that anyone can make a film. Which, in turn, also means that the people who are going to, you know, try chase mastery, try chase mm. greatness, try mm. create truly fundamentally mm. changing, like culture changing pieces of art, are always going to be less than the people who are just trying to make a quick buck. No, I'm talking more from a historic perspective. I'm talking pre-internet and social media okay. um, and technologies like okay. smartphones yeah. and things like this mm. because unfortunately um, since the sort of main dawn of film it has been eminently racist fascist in many ways mm-hmm. and uh, whether I was in the United States watching westerns mm-hmm. that dehumanise uh, Native American Indians mm-hmm. or I was in England um, or France mm-hmm. uh, watching the stereotyping of uh, the black brute mm-hmm. uh, the, the black servant uh, um, existence and things I've said to my wife if Hitler had won the Second World War, mm-hmm. the film industry wouldn't have been that different. It would have taken a few years where it would have been more extreme. But when you look at the history of American cinema, mm-hmm. it is so fascist. And access to it is still being fought over to this very day. So it's fine if, um, you know, uh, there are independent social films and things that really speak about reality and and the stories of real people. But they're dwarfed uh, by the crap. Yeah, yeah, because Marvel always have more money than Jim Jarmusch. Exactly, you see. So um, all I lament is the fact that there isn't the balance. I remember having a row with John Singleton just before we came back. And uh, what was it? Brothers in the Hood or Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood yeah. and things like this. And we had a row. Um, I understood his perspective. I'm exposing um, our culture and all of this kind of stuff. But at the same time, he was part of the criminalization of uh, black people. Mm. Because I hung out with a lot of white people too, I could see that. You know, it was like when I was young at school and each week um, we'd be allowed to watch Tarzan. And I felt humiliated. I felt totally humiliated. And yet it was the most popular thing of the week Mm -hmm. amongst the whole school. Couldn't miss it. Um, And I saw the the reaction of these kids afterwards when they looked at me. You know, the superiority complexes. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, those subtle ways in which... um, 
uh, toys when I was even younger. Um, the gollywog. Ha! Um, you know. Uh, and yet it was, it was as popular or more popular than the teddy bear, yeah. you see. So um, now you're being called a gollywog on yeah. the street or by people at your school. Correct. You're being called a wog and a nigger yeah. uh, and all of this kind of stuff. And it stems from something which might be on a Marmite jar or a, a toy or a this, that, and the oh, other. It's subtle gift. Yes, you know. Um, so, so, I mean, that clearly carried through. Um, in, into the film industry and it was something which at one point I wanted to go into film to change, to tell stories that were not being told about either experiences of friends of mine from other African countries mm. or um, about my own struggle Okay, because we need to wrap up soon, two questions then Yes, three actually First one, have you seen a television show called Atlanta, by any chance? Atlanta? Yeah, no do yourself a favor, it's truly phenomenal. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant mm. television mm. Second question is It seems as if you were just dramatically ahead of your time for a lot of different a lot of different ideas. Because you're right, the gross majority of American television is uh, quote unquote, you know It's bubble now. White supremacist nonsense mm. that is just spewed to entertain a very small like a large audience. Mm. But if you look at where we are right now in the world, the amount of African content that's being created is just, it's, it's, it's growing at an exponential rate. Yeah. I mean? Which is very promising. But I always sometimes wonder, because I watched a Nigerian film the other day, and I was like, this might be a Nigerian film, but it's an American story. Mm-hmm. You know, and it still upheld a lot of these problematic ideas. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where that will change? Or do you think it's just too easy and therefore people will continue to do it? What was that Marvel film about Africa? Black Panther. You see, as long as we celebrate films like Black Panther, Mm. where you've had a drought of films, if any, about Africa and African experiences, done for mainstream cinema, Mm. getting general release, distribution, Mm. as long as we celebrate the, the rubbish, where they're really playing with our culture and can't even give it the indigenous kind of authenticity. They've got to make up Wakandas and all of this kind of stuff. And then we all go around clapping, saying, oh, this is beautiful. As long as that's going to be the situation, then it's also troublesome for young black filmmakers who, who have real stories that are more exciting than the fiction that a few white guys in America created. Well, so one. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, there, there also has to be this balance whereby in today's world, access is created. I, at one point, um, used to slam Netflix until they started allowing black films uh, to see the sunshine. And um, now I'm an admirer because I've seen so many young black filmmakers putting their stuff out there, as you say, with the new technology and streaming and everything like this. It's a different world. Um, And and so uh, will it ever change? It will generationally. But um, as Spike Lee says, with all his success, he still can't greenlight a film, Hmm. you know. 
Um, and with all his success, uh, if he doesn't diversify, if he were only to do black film, yeah. he would be in the cupboard now. <laughs> you know, right. that's um, but, but he's a revelation and an inspiration to so many young black filmmakers. Okay, so, so here's where I'm going to challenge you, because mm. this is something I fundamentally believe, um, just as a consequence of my existence. Mm. Mm. There's many problems with the cinema of a gentleman like Steven Spielberg. Mm. There's huge problems with it. Um, he's made some pretty great films. Yeah. But it's generally, on the whole, it's very problematic content. One thing I really, really dramatically appreciate about someone like Steven Spielberg, and I'm going to use an example of someone else, is that his creativity and his artistic output, for a while at least, not anymore I believe, but I can be corrected, balanced itself really nicely with economic upside and artistic output. And then I look at someone like Spike Lee, I used to be able to view that, you know, Hollywood is highly problematic racist space and that doesn't allow people like Spike Lee the, the, the opportunities that they should. And so I stopped and I realized the Spike Lee's of my generation are infinitely more um, successful than he is because unlike him, they know how to balance the economic upside with the creative output, if that makes any sense, which becomes a very challenging um, thing to do, but it is possible, right? Because you, you, of course, get the, the complete opposite end of the spectrum. One is Spike Lee and guys like, um, was that gentleman who made uh, How to Kill a Sheep or Killer a Sheep? I can't remember his name now. But let's just say him and John Singleton. John Singleton's a lot more mainstream, actually. Let's just say it's Spike Lee, I'm not my name. Now, there's time here. Time here, But my mistress' imagination is a creative genius. Yeah. And I don't even think he's one of the top one Andrew creatives in mm. the United States, mm. let alone even the state that he was born in. Mm. But he's managed to understand mm. the business side of it and the creative output. Yeah. And unfortunately, the world that we live in today, it's not the world of God, it's not the world of Tukupa, mm. right? It's a world where, you know, money talks. So well, Spike has done that. I mean, Spike's made a fortune. Uh, but um, Spike could have made a lot more money if he was not. But that's not his motive. Yes. However, however, the thing about money is that yeah. it's a lot like water in the desert, yeah. right? Even if you have a thousand liters or a hundred thousand yeah. or a million liters, yeah. it's great to have, not for you, but to be able to enable other people as well. It's also so, about crossover, you see. Uh, Spike was made by black cinema goers, mm. and then he crossed over because of the power of his films. Yes. Malcolm X, this one, that one, you know, um, uh, do the right thing, all of mm. these kind of things. Um, he crossed over to a young white audience as well. Yes. And um, uh, so I, I, I think, you know, what is important about Spike is he could have made all kinds of crap. Um, and uh, he, he, he makes films from his heart. He researches them, he has great crews, and he delivers great content. But at the end of the day, the most important thing that I think your entire artist against apartheid endeavor highlighted for mm. us is that regardless of how noble your intentions are, mm. no matter how sincere and beautiful they are, distribution matters. Yeah. So at the end of the day, even with you guys artists against apartheid, I'm sure there were decisions you had to make where you were like, this guy might be a bit of you know an awful person in many aspects, but he's willing to support this and will take his support because we know that on a long enough time scale, enabling this one awful person will give us enough capital to enable nine 
brilliant one. Sure, black or white. Exactly. I so mean, so it's something um, like this, the Spike Lee had that same yeah. opportunity, well, but they didn't take it. You know, you can't ask Spike to be everything. <laughs> Not really. Um, and, and also you can't blame Tyler Perry for politically being nothing. Well, um, like, I don't blame either one. You know, because that's just thing. life. Yeah. All I'm talking about is, is you know, the, 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 the balance uh, for next generations yeah. of who do I look up to. That depends on you, on where you come from and your background. But what will not change quickly? That's why the Golden Globes is starting again with a few blacks in it. Out of 83 judges, yeah. they didn't have a single black man yeah. or woman. Uh-huh. And, and now they've pulled in maybe five or six out of the 83. So things are changing. But that's where the money is. It's the, it's the Academy Awards where the money is um, in terms of film. And uh, Spike still wants to get his Academy Awards. Tyler Perry still wants to make his money. But, you know, the one thing about entertainment is um, there's, always, there's always an audience yeah. if, if you can reach them. So, I mean, I've never had a problem with Tyler Perry, but I've watched one of his films and I don't really want to watch any more. Correct, correct. But um, you appreciate his existence. But I appreciate his yeah. existence. And that's what I'm saying. One of, one of the most wonderful things that happened to me um, when I first went to live in the United States was going to the cinema, it was a black movie, um, and it was some thriller or something. The audience was so engaged with the movie that I was shocked, coming from England, where you sit quietly and watch the whole movie. You yeah. can laugh, Correct. but you sit and watch the whole movie uh, without saying anything. This audience, this African-American audience, they were cheering, and if the bad guy was being beaten by the good guy, you know, they'd cheer on the good guy and mm. this, that, and the other. It looks like community theater. It was vocal to the mm. point whereby I felt like saying to people, will you shut up? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was only afterwards I remember telling friends that I realized that's the perfect way to enjoy a film. Of course. It's, that's the theater of film. That's yeah. its community you're, you're so involved in the script, mm. but you also, as a person, feel you have the ability um, to lose your inhibitions. And lose and yourself in the story. That's it. Yeah. And, and, and get really root as well, if... you do it with music, right? That's it. You don't sit in silence that's while you're famous that's it. You scream and shout. So it was a different audience experience, yeah. you know. Um, and, uh, yeah. I, I mean, look, uh, film for me um, never really happened. Because apart yes. from a few movies like Cry Freedom and a few yeah. others... I didn't really get to make the feature films and the yes. stories. I still write scripts. Yeah. I well, still uh, you're, you're spend my time. You still have the opportunity to make films. Yeah, you know, well, I'm 64 now. I don't know how long that'll last. But yeah, I mean... Last one, um, yeah, you'll be 65. But I'm to take. You can still make films. Well, I still, I still, I still uh, write screenplays and uh, um, screenplays. And I've been working recently with a South African writer. Um, and so, you know, I still dream. And you mustn't um, stop dreaming. No, exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, but um, there are limitations, you know. Um, to so I didn't, when I came back here, I didn't go into film because I realised I couldn't support my mother or earn a monthly wage mm. by making movies, you mm. know. 
television allowed me a way um, to uh, uh, earn a salary and uh, do an aspect of one of my dreams, mm. which I used to call the Hello Revolution. Mm. Um, and it was literally saying, okay, all these ANC people have been demonized for 30 years. Um, I'm going to tell you who Bantu Holomisa really is. Mm. I'm going to tell you who Nelson Mandela really is uh, by bringing him into studio. And then you get a little glimpse. Okay. Not heavy politics, yeah. like in the later people of the South, but, but um, you know, entertainment orientated. Oh, yeah. And uh, I thought, let me do that for a while. And then when I've m made enough money, then I'll go back to film. It just never happened. Um, so I love film, uh, but I am, I am a bit of a, a, a critic. Um, and, <laughs> you know, John Cunney is one of my dear friends. And I'm sure he tells everyone that. <laughs> John Cuddy tells everyone anyway. Well, I remember um, being asked, he was doing an interview right here, and I was asked about this Panther film. And I looked at John, and I just said to this guy, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> you will want to party about it, fine. Okay. <laughs> All right, last question. Mm. And we must wrap this up, because you're a very busy man. <laughs> How close are you with Peter Dirkes? He's a good friend. I met him during the Artists Against Apartheid days okay, in England. Okay. And he had the character of Vito Zero. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Vito was a very important part of my childhood as well. Okay. I thought she yes. was a very sexy woman. <laughs> and I still find her a very sexy woman. <laughs> Have you ever seen the interview with Sir Ramaphosa and Ivita? No. You should rewatch it. Mm. It's incredibly interesting in hindsight. Because uh, I'll say one thing. Peter was an incredibly talented artist yes. and um, and a like TV person, mm. TV host. But the one thing that people don't talk enough about, especially because we can we can now in our society, is if Eita was fucking seductive. Like if you watch a lot of Eita's early interviews, she takes a lot of very hard, ordinary, straight South African men, and she she turns them into marshmallows. And I remember recently watching that uh, interview with Evita and uh, Cyril Ramaphosa and thinking to myself, a lot more must have happened when the cameras turned off there, I can tell you that much. What do you mean? Oh, I'm not let your imagination do the rest. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Uh, do you have any comments on that? No, I mean, I haven't seen the interview and, you know, I, I remember uh, doing a biographical uh, People of the South on Peter. I went to Darling, where he lives, and, um, you know, doing all the research and things, and he's a genius um, comedian, mm, mm, mm. Um, and uh, just... Brilliant interview as well. Uh, you see, I haven't seen his interviews, mm. um, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a national treasure, and, um, again, um, you know, there, there are people who did much better, because they're in other countries. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Dame Edna Everidge and people who preceded him. So, you know, uh, and then living in Paris and uh, um, England um, and the States, I, 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 I kind of, um, I understood the whole drag thing, mm. you know. And I just thought, you know, intellectually, that, you know, some comics are quite intellectual in how they expose people. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I'm a great admirer of his, but I don't know 
his work that well. Okay. You know, uh, I certainly hadn't seen him interviewing people. All right, well, I'll send it to you. You can have a look. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Tumble, mm. thank you so much for your time. That's a, a wonderful chat. Hopefully we can do it again. Absolutely. Okay, amazing. Wow, I really enjoyed that. I hope you did. And thank you so much for listening to this part of the podcast. I always feel like this is like uh, the marrow of a podcast because like, this is where you get all the juicy shit. And I'm going to use this as an example. Um, whoever follows me back on Twitter and tweets at me, Doc Chevaleza, 1967, Mohodu. I will gift a free copy of my novel. <laughs> I don't think anyone listens to this part. Anyway, dude, thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Um, as usual, if you want to get a hold of me or you just want to complain or like report me to the Human Rights Commission or something like that, um, you can find me at my website, mutei.com. That's M O. T H E I dot com, or you can find me on Instagram at M zero T H three I. Uh, same was on Twitter. Um, yeah, I really, really appreciate feedback, and I would appreciate your feedback and feedback from anyone else. So, yeah, please hit me up if you have any suggestions. And even if you just like the podcast and you just want to say, Hazards, I'm here for you, I see you, and I believe in you. Thanks so much, folks. Have a wonderful evening. And don't forget, go to therapy. Love ya.